Our New Testament lesson is found in Ephesians chapter 2. We are reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we gather around your word this morning, Father, we do ask that you would speak. Your servants are gathered together to listen and to be guided into all truth and the light of your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Flannery O'Connor, the southern novelist and short story writer, once said, the dead are poor. You can't get any poorer than dead. It's in her witty but yet elegant style that she reminds us of an essential truth in life that death separates us definitively from any resource that we've ever owned or had, that there is no coming back from it, that in death there is simply decomposition. We have nothing. Interestingly enough, when the Apostle Paul talks about our spiritual condition, he assigns this same poverty to us. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. He says so rather abruptly as he ends his glorious opening praise of chapter 1, and now he assigns us this condition, and he says this is not something that awaits you in the future, but it is the reality of the present, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, honestly, this will utterly shock and disturb some of you. This lacks regards for our fragile sense of self-ego. It also lacks regards for our allergy to universal categories. We don't like big, broad statements today that are categorical. But without nuance... The Apostle Paul, in concert with the rest of Scripture, says that by nature, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, this doesn't just pertain to a few really bad people out there. And it doesn't just pertain to a few people who have never darkened the door of a church. But rather, Paul says, like the rest of mankind, he was speaking to the church, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. No one is off the hook here. But this brutal honesty 
which is a rather dire portrait of humanity, this has become life-giving to so many of us. Isn't that strange? That such a negative assessment could be the source of life and hope for human beings. And the question for us this morning is, how does such a negative assessment become life-giving? And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we'll see that there are two reasons why. And the first is this, that in verses 1 through 3, we see that we cannot understand God's solution without first grasping our own situation. That before we can hear the good news of God's solution, we have to understand the bad news of our corrupt situation. And Paul simply says it very baldly in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so there's a spiritual death that encompasses us, and then he gives us the location of this death, that it's in trespasses and sins. A trespass is simply to exceed a boundary. A sin is to fall short of a mark. And he's saying it's in that location of trespassing and sinning that we are dead, cut off from God. He then goes further to explain what this death actually looks like and the powers that we are subject to. And many people find this difficult because we tend to view sin as just the breaking of God's law, that we view it as a personalist encounter, that we have personally done something wrong. But the Apostle Paul has a much fuller development for us when we think about being dead in trespasses and sins. William Golding, in one of my favorite novels that you've heard me reference before, The Lord of the Flies, is attempting to understand after two world wars why human beings are the way they are. And so he writes what seems to be a childish fable, a story of British boys who are marooned on an island together. But there is a profound question in one of the narratives inside the story where one of the boys asks the question, what makes things break up the way that they do? It's an honest question. Why are things so messed up? Because the boys were having tremendous social strife. There was violence. They had divided themselves into camps. It was awful. It looked just like the world. So Golding goes on a search. The boys try to locate the evil that was present amongst them? Was it the beast that lurked out in the forest? Some thought that was the source of the evil. Some thought that it was just that they were on such a primitive island and that the boys had gone native. And so it was about the environment they were in that made things break up. And then Golding's own answer was that, no, it is the evil inside of us. In the Bible, we don't get a simplistic answer, but the, the Apostle Paul gives a hearty amen to all three of these, that there is the world, there is the devil, and there is the flesh, and that when we talk about the corruption of humanity, that we have to hold all three of those together. And so he goes on to explain this situation of death in verse 2, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. And so he acknowledges that there is a world, there is an environment and a situation in which we live that is broken and inspires us to sin and also holds us in the captivity of sin. 
And then he mentions the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the Bible does hold that there is a personal power. We call him the devil or Satan who accuses and also somewhat has come in to the world and expressed squatter's rights over God's good creation. That good creation has now been corrupted. And so this personal power is at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he goes further, not just to say it's environmental and not just to say that it is a personal uh, form of um, uh, personal evil at work in our world, but then he highlights that we ourselves are corrupt. Look at what he says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, in verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Paul is speaking to the church. What they once were, the passions of the flesh. This word flesh is important to understand because oftentimes when we hear that, we think of just physical bodies. But that's not quite the nuance of what Paul means. When Paul talks about the flesh, he is talking about an order of life that is organized independent of God. And so when he speaks of the lust of the flesh and of the body and of the mind, he is talking about any system of organization of life that is done outside of God. Any way of living that is not primarily oriented to him. And so, friends, he's not talking about just pagan debauchery here. When he talks about the flesh, there are many different ways to live in the flesh. Some people do it very cleanly and nicely, and everything is all together, and they may even inhabit church pews most of their life, but their life is still organized around a system where God is not king of that life and where they call their own shots. And then there are other expressions that are far more apparent. But Paul is saying that everyone is born into this condition of organizing their lives around themselves, that they are subject to Satan, to the evil one, and that they also live in a broken environment. That this is the situation that we find ourselves in. C.S. Lewis, in writing about the human heart, says this, It is a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a bastion of pride, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. And Lewis there has captured so much of what sin is in that short sentence. That it's not just certain activities but it's the lust of the heart, it's the over-desire for things, God's good gifts in the world, and when we want them too much, this is sin. That it can be our ambitions when we want things too much and we then try to achieve them. Fear, a harem of fondled hatreds. Who hasn't hated someone in their heart? That this is the nature of sin. That is the world that we inhabit as broken and fallen people. It's the situation you and I have inherited as part of being human beings, and it is the one that we have then participated in and been guilty and are culpable for. And so this is grim. It's difficult. But on the other side of this, Paul then makes a transition in verses 4 through 7, where after helping us understand our situation, 
What we see and why we can see this as good news is that God's solution lies outside of us. That we don't learn of our situation and we're not then turned back to our own resources. But in learning of our situation, we suddenly are awakened that God's solution for us lies outside of us. He doesn't ask us to fix it. And so read once, once more with me verses 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is the thing that God has done outside of us as a solution to our situation, is that Jesus came and died a death on our behalf. And then because he was not guilty, he was raised. He was raised out of the hold of death. And now he's been exalted to God's right hand. And salvation for us, when we place our faith in Jesus, we share in everything that is true of him. His death becomes our death. And then we are no longer in that condition of being dead in our trespasses and sins because when united to him, we are alive in him, is what Paul says. This is crazy. That when you place your faith in Jesus, his death counts as your death, but then his resurrection pulls you out of the condition of being dead in trespasses and sins. And then he says you're exalted now to God's right hand, that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What's true of Jesus is true of you. And that Jesus defeated the world. Jesus defeated the flesh. Jesus defeated the devil. And someone now outside of you grants you to share in his victory. Some of you have heard me share this story, and just forgive me. It's a Colson family classic. I grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, on West Haven Circle. It was an ordinary neighborhood, and uh, there were a lot of young kids my age, a few slightly older and a few slightly younger. There was one family with two brothers who I feared. They were a great menace to me, the Edmondson brothers. The younger of the Edmondson brothers, his name was Chris Edmondson. He was the block bully. He directed things. He was an enormous problem for me because when we played games, he always made up the rules and changed them mid-course. Having a justice button from a very young childhood, I always found it objectionable and couldn't stand it. The parents were in collusion, though, because they just wanted us all out of the house, so they didn't care. Long as we were out of the house, no parent seemed to have any oversight of this corrupt system that I was living in. And then there was also a deeper problem because like any good bully, a bully has minions, people who work on his behalf. So the little kids followed the bully and they could harass you just as much. It was awful. And so there were times in the summers in West Haven Circle where I would just give up. And there was one strange kid around the block. His name was Danny Hoden. Danny was weird. Just take my word for it, okay? And, uh, but on a really desperate night, when I couldn't take Chris Edmondson and the clan anymore, I would go around the block and play with Danny Hoden. One time, Danny and I were playing, and I noticed here came the gang, the bully and his minions, riding their bikes. 
And they came up to us and they threw some mud or something on us. I can't even remember exactly what it was. And then they rode off laughing at us, calling us names. Danny looked at me. He said, come on. And so we started to walk around the block. I was walking with him. We were talking. And then I realized where he was going. He was going to Chris Edmondson's house. He arrives at the house. He rings the doorbell. His mother answers. He says, is Chris home? She says, yes. She went and got him. Chris came to the door and said, what do you want? He hit him in the stomach, and then he hit him with an uppercut. And I was standing out by the curb, and I still remember watching the explosion of his nose. Just blood went everywhere. It was beautiful. (laughs) Because you know what happened that day? The whole system, the whole corrupt system of the bully, his minions, and the, the parents not caring about what happened ended. My dad still says, you know, it got so much better after Danny Hoden busted that kid. It did. Things got so much better for me, and I didn't have anything to do with it. I, had, I didn't have the courage to stand up to Chris Edmondson. He was twice my size, but Danny Hoden destroyed him in his own doorstep. <laughs> and friends, this is what Jesus does for us. He delivers us. He defeats the one that you can't defeat. He defeats the one that holds you in captivity, that weighs you down with guilt and a lack of forgiveness, that holds you in a world system that's broken, that leads you into further sin, that holds you in his own power. Jesus destroys him. And united to him, his victory becomes yours. This is the grace of salvation that it doesn't belong to you. It's not your work to be done, but it's God's work on your behalf. And we can hear the bad news. We can be bruised by our situation because then God relieves us. He doesn't call us to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and to prove ourselves to him, but rather he delivers us single-handedly. And friends, when we confess our faith, saying the ancient creed of the apostles. We remember those climatic events of Jesus' life, that he was died and was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of his Father. And when we say that historical recitation of what happened to Jesus, from now on I always want you to remember that that's also what's happened to you. By faith, that is what is true of you. You in some way have been raised and experienced the powers of resurrection now. There are powers of resurrection that you don't know yet, that God will visit upon you one day. But you share in all of that. That is God's grace. And it's why Paul interjects and he says, by grace you have been saved. This is a complicated phrase that he uses when he says, have been saved. It's a past tense, but it's, it is also passive. And this just accentuates the fact that you did nothing, that something was done to you so that you would be saved. That's what the passive voice means. And it also has ongoing implications. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved because Jesus is the victor. And so what are the implications, though? What does it mean when we can understand our former situation, being held in sin's power, and now we've been delivered decisively from that, 
by a great victor who's done something on our behalf, what does it now mean? Two things for us to look at in verses 8 and 10. The first, we cannot commend ourselves to God in any way. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we were driving through Cuba the other week, there were signs ahead of the bridges that we had to cross. We saw this on two occasions. And the sign read this. I had to ask Maria to translate for me because I couldn't understand it. And fortunately, she translated it after we were across the bridge because the bridge said, bridge in bad shape. <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? You know, <laughs> Bridge in bad shape. Here we are going Mach 9, you know, following Kurt Nelson through Cuba, weaving through these roads, and you come up on a bridge that says, bridge in bad shape. And it's like, oh, you know, well, hopefully it holds. <laughs> Friends, when we try to reconcile ourselves to God with our works, when we find something to boast in, it's a bridge that is in bad shape. It'll never get you there. It can never carry the weight of your sins. It can't atone. We can't do anything to commend ourselves to God, and this is where Paul is now pressing, that it is by grace that we are saved when we place our faith in Jesus, which is not a work. It's simply the instrument that receives everything that God gives to us. And so we have absolutely nothing to boast in when we participate in this corrupt condition in our world. And that God has uniquely worked it out so that all relies upon him. It is a gift. And the way Paul speaks here in verse 8 about the gift, scholars ask the question, what is the it? It is the gift of God. What is he referring to? Is he referring to the grace or is he referring to the faith? And the bottom line is he's referring to it all, that your faith is a gift. God enables you to believe in the power of the Spirit, but his gift to you is sending Christ as well into the world. It's all a gift. You have nothing to give to God because you're dead. You have no resources. You can't get any poorer than dead. That's our situation. And God works it out from the first to the last and gives it as free gift. So we have nothing to commend ourselves to him. And the second piece of this for implication is that we've been created for better things. You'll note that in verses 1 through 3, Paul speaks in the past tense. He's speaking to the Ephesian church. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. That was their condition. But God in Jesus Christ has now done something new. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And friends, this is the language of new creation, that God created us again out of the dead in Christ Jesus for good works. Just as Jesus' body went down into the dead, we were dead also, estranged from God. But Jesus was raised And the powers of new creation pulled him out of the grave. And he's the pioneer of this new life. 
And Paul is saying that those same powers of new creation, when you were regenerated and brought into relationship with God, it is those powers of new creation that have visited you. The same powers that will recreate the world one day have invaded into your space now. That God has created you in Christ Jesus. You are his workmanship. It's bold, audacious language what's being said about us. And we have been created now for good works. It's important to note the order of this. Because we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. That God raises you from the dead to call you to a new purpose to serve him. Where we delight and we respond to his grace in gratitude. Giving ourselves to him and to others. Walking in the way of love with which he has loved us. This is the flow of the Christian life. And God prepared those ahead of time for us to walk in. For us to embrace. For us to enjoy. And friends, we no longer live under the control of the old master. He is around. He troubles us. We still deal with the fragments of sin in our lives. But Paul is pleading for us to see the grace of God that has freed us from that. And perhaps the greatest struggle of the Christian as they are experiencing sanctification is to remind themselves of these truths I am his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Because as a Christian, we often don't believe that. We don't feel that way. We have our failures and our faults. And so we begin to live as if we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. And we live in that contradiction. And the grace of God pleads with us to consider ourselves to be in a different way, created in Christ Jesus. The powers of new creation have fallen upon you. That has been done for you. Appropriate it now by faith. Friends, this is the grace of God. It reaches into the depths of the grave and pulls us out, brings us into new life to give us freedom and life before God. Enjoy every bit of it. Don't cut it short. This is what your God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we do celebrate our great victor, Jesus Christ. It is in him that we have grace and salvation. We have been raised to new life because he died our death. And so free us to recognize all that is ours in him. Lord, we pray that we would put away all attempts to commend ourselves to you. That we would walk in good works out of a response of gratitude for all the grace that we've been given. Remind us that we are your workmanship. Work that into our hearts. We pray in Christ's name.